You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. All right, if you would grab a Bible uh, and open up to Mark chapter 5. We're going to be finishing Mark chapter 5 here this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, our ushers have lots in their hands. Just slide your hand up. They'd love to bring you one. We want to see God's Word in your hands, open to the text that He has provided through His Holy Spirit as He speaks to us always through His sufficient Word. So Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 43 this morning. And as you're turning there or else as you're punching, you know, little chapters and stuff into your book, um, I want to ask you about your faith ask you about your faith for a minute. What does faith mean? I mean, what does faith really mean? What does faith really look like? You know, we throw this word faith around quite a bit. It, it's, it's a part of our Christian lingo, and, and we think we know what we're talking about, but sometimes I think it's a little bit muddy. We even throw the word faith around in our society, right? In, in our normal society, we throw this word faith around. I remember back, and, uh, and some of you older folk like me, um, you remember maybe back to 1988, there was a song about faith. Uh, the artist George Michael, top-selling single of the year. The main chorus was, you got to have faith, 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 right? Now, I remember those lyrics, and I'm sure you do. Remember back, actually, I even think about this music video and a great big cross hanging off of this guy's ear, singing about faith, but what is he talking about? Or even if uh, a little later in life, um, Bon Jovi, 1992, they had an album called Keep the Faith. What kind of faith are they saying that we should keep? Even in our Christian songs, we sing about faith all the time, but sometimes it's not really clear. This one song, I just heard it yesterday on on Christian radio, I will walk by faith even when I cannot see because this broken road prepares your will for me. Now, I think I I know what Jeremy Camp is trying to sing about here, but, but even just in that, it's not abundantly clear. We got our everyday sayings like, you got to have a little faith, brother. You got to take a leap of faith. Even in our Christian circles, we, we use the lingo faith. And, and even depending on which type of church you're in, the concept of faith can even be confusing as well. Some, some people treat faith as some kind of a magical force, something that you have to activate in order to activate God's hand. And so we ask ourselves, is, is faith something that I've got to do, or is it a gift given to me? And if it is a gift given to me, then what do I do with it? If it is a gift, can I do anything with it? And if so, how does it work? Well, friends, the text we're looking at today deals with faith. Yes, we know that faith is a gift, but as we look at our text today, we're also going to see that this gift is something that needs to be actively pursued, actively involved with. Faith is not just sitting in a chair and letting God work. Faith is something that we lean into. 
especially as we, we were promised as Christians to meet trials of various kinds, persecution. This, this is actually promised in our life. We are going to face these things uh, if we're going to walk in faith in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we, as, we, as we look at our text, we're going to see that Jesus is going to deal with two very impossible problems by worldly standards, right? We're going to see that faith is, is not blind. Faith is, is not a force. Faith is active. Faith has feet. Friends, real faith, real faith is connected to an object, okay? Real faith is intrinsically connected to the faithfulness of a person, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and Jesus is always faithful. And we're going to see his faithfulness in this text. We're going to see it in three different ways, which then we're going to respond in three different ways as well. And we're going to, we're going to respond in those as three faith goals, three faith goals for our life as we want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Before we do that, let's pray and let's ask for God's help. Lord, we do come before you as, as, as those who have been purchased. We just sung a song about surrendering. We know, Lord, that, uh, that we, we can only surrender in, in the Spirit's power. We can only surrender because you first surrendered on the cross for us. You took the punishment for the sins of all of us here this morning, and for all of those who would turn to you and trust in you. And Lord, we thank you that in that grace, we see ourselves that we did not have to be on that cross, although we should have been on that cross. But you came, and you walked, and you lived the perfect life for us, and you died the death that we deserved on that cross so that we could have faith. And faith is a gift it is something given by you to us so that we can believe. It's, it's spirit-enabled. It's grace-induced. It's blood-bought. And so would you remind us of that this morning? And, and as we have your open word before us this morning, Lord, we ask that you would speak and you would speak powerfully to us. Lord, we walk in, in this room this morning. We walk uh, in here as the church, as the people. We walk in here with, with a week on us. We even walk in here with the stench of sin upon us. And Lord, we come to you this morning in confession. We lay those things down at your feet. We ask you for forgiveness. And Lord, as we look at your word, we know that we're promised forgiveness because of the blood of the Lamb. And we rejoice in that this morning. So we ask you, by your Spirit, to speak to us through your word. And we ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. All right, chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. Now, it's a little dark up here for me, but I'm trying to see my words here. All right, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. 
This first section, verses 21 to 24, what we learn about Jesus, and this is all about him and his faithfulness, what we learn about him is that Jesus is always available. He's always available. And our first faith goal inside of that is that we must have desperate faith when facing the unthinkable. So as Jesus and his disciples, remember they were just rejected on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember there was the healing of the demon-possessed man. And then as, as the people in the, the area heard about this and they come and seen Jesus, they wanted him away from them. They didn't want him anywhere near them. And so they were rejected. And then we see them crossing the Galilee again. I think there's a map beside me, behind me. Crossing the Galilee again and they come back to Cap- Capernaum. And we see that they're actually being welcomed at the shore. So instead of the day before, there was a raging maniac falling at Jesus' feet. Today, we see a well-respected man falling at the feet of Christ. And his name is Jairus, who Mark describes here as a ruler of the synagogue. An arche synagogus. How about that for a title? The Greeks, he's an, he's an arche synagogos, he's a ruler of the synagogue. So back in those days, wherever there was a synagogue, right, the Jewish house of worship, there would also be a synagogue ruler. He would be a responsible man, sometimes two, sometimes three, depending on the size of the synagogue, and he would oversee the business and the day-to-day care of the synagogue. And so in this case here of, of Capernaum, we see that Jairus is the man for the job. He wouldn't have been a professional or a scribe or a a Pharisee. He was a local layman. And he would oversee building maintenance, security. He would be a part of procuring the, the scrolls that would be read. He would be arranging readers, really kind of the functions of the church. He'd be looking after who's going to pray and all of the Sabbath details. And so we see this synagogue ruler, Jairus, he is a well-respected religious ruler. And then we see here that he has fallen at the feet of Jesus. Just like the demoniac, proskuneo, he has fallen at the feet of Jesus. And this is a posture of worship, prostrate. And he's at the feet of Jesus, and he's in desperation. Verse 23, and he's imploring him, imploring Jesus, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. And come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. We see this desperate father. Desperate. And what we're seeing with him is desperate faith. This man who who would have originally been opposed to this Jesus. He knew how much the Pharisees hated him. And this man is now believing in Jesus. Jesus. And he believes in who he is, and he believes in what he has done. He would have known the story of Jesus so far. He was probably in the synagogue when Jesus first cast out the demon in Mark chapter 1. He would have known about Jesus, how he taught with such authority, not as the scribes. He would have seen all of the massive crowds around him and how Jesus was performing all of these miracles. And now this ruler is faced with the unthinkable situation of a daughter dying. His little, precious, I like how that's in there, his little daughter. 
really speaking of, of her preciousness to him. Even the Gospel of Luke says that this is his only daughter, so that just adds to it how precious she is. And she's at the very point of death. If anyone has experienced the serious sickness of a child, you know what he's feeling. I don't know what you've experienced with your children, if, if any have been uh, so sick that you were worried for their life. I remember one of our sons was in the hospital, and he was sick as a, as a little one, and, and uh, he wasn't eating. I remember the concern and the, just praying for him, praying that he would be made well and live. We also uh, we see that here, that he, he wants Jesus to come so that she could be made well and live. He knew that Jesus had the power. He's seen it. He knew that Jesus was faithful and that he was curing the sick. And so his true faith at this very moment, if you see it, it's intrinsically tied to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he does. And so what does our Savior do? Does he weigh the requests of this man? Like, you know, I've got thousands of people here around me, but your request, you know, maybe I should stay with the crowd. That's not what he does. Jesus is available. Jesus makes himself available. He's always available when you cry out to him. And he goes with this desperate man. Verse 24, it says, he went with him. It reminds me of Luke chapter 15, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? This is your Jesus. He is a shepherd. And when he sees the requests of, of his children in need, he's going to go after them. He's going to always be available for you. Jesus is always available. He's showing his true colors as the great shepherd here. And he's always available to tend to his sheep. And so he's not worried about the crowd. The crowd is actually going to take care of themselves here. Jesus goes with this man, and what does the crowd do? They go with him. They simply follow and they throng about him. So in our, in our country... I want you guys to think about the, our healthcare system. We, we love our healthcare system, right? I know it's not technically free, um, but it is a healthcare system that, that we love. And we have much needed care. And at times in our life, depending on our sickness and our ailment, one of the problems with our healthcare system is we have such long lines. We have long wait times, especially for specialized care. Sometimes certain treatments, uh, critical surgeries, can take up to a year or more as you're waiting in line, right? Even for crucial help, sometimes you're waiting a long time and it can be so frustrating. There's so many people in front of us in those lines, and sometimes it can just seem so desperate. But the beauty about our God the beauty about Jesus, and it's exampled perfectly in him, is that he is always available. There's no waiting rooms for Jesus Christ. There's no lineups. There's no busy signal on the line. The great physician is always in, always. 
and he is always willing to tend to our greatest needs. Just think about it. We have a planet of 7 billion people, and they are all, every one of us is all in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And yet when one person cries out to him in desperate faith, believing in who he is and what he has done, Jesus makes himself available. He's always available. And he goes with us, 100% in. And he, and he meets our greatest needs. So friends, you've got to remind yourself that Jesus is always, always, always available. Say that with me. Jesus is always available. Jesus is always available. And so if he's always available to his people, and he is, why are we so silent? Why are we not crying out to him all the more when he's so available to us? Why instead of going to him, why do we just keep trying harder and harder and harder in our own strength? When we need his strength. Why all this independence when we need to be Christ-dependent? Why all the crying in desperation in our own heads when we need to be crying in desperation at the feet of Jesus like this ruler? So when it comes to faith, we have to understand that desperation is key. We have to have a desperate faith because we are desperate. We are desperate apart from him. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So as this ruler faces the unthinkable, possible death of his child, how does his response inform our own faith? We must have a desperate faith. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we desperately running to the feet of Jesus, our always available Savior? Are you asking him to come with you to meet your unthinkable need, your unthinkable challenges? Are you imploring him? Are you pleading with him? Friends, God has given us everything. He has given us everything in Jesus Christ. He has given us his word. If we want to know what God has to say about any of our situations, he's written about it in his word, and he's written about it sufficiently. Do you believe that? 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, not some things. All things through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It's, it's all of him for all of us. He's given us also, on top of that, unprecedented access to his throne room. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne room of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have unprecedented access to him. And we go to him. And he goes with us. Matthew 28, 20b. Behold, he says, I am with you always. When? Until the end of the age. He doesn't leave us. He goes with us. And then on top of that, as you look around this room, he has given us one another. He has given us each other. 
He's given us the fellowship of the saints so that we are really here for one another, right? We're here for him and we're here for one another, especially, especially when the unthinkable things happen. Think about the possibility of, of a diagnosis of a really severe disease and you have no hope of, of continuing. He has given us each other to help us in those situations. What about the death of a child? What about the sickness of a family member? What about the hard things in this life? He has given us each other. He has given us his word and he has given us himself and he always goes with us. And as we go with us, let us just also think about this as we gather together as God's church. It's when you feel the least desire to be with God's people that you need all the more to be with God's people. Sometimes we just don't feel like being with God's people. And especially when the hard times come or something's happening, we want to retreat, we want to stay at home, we want to be by ourselves. But what you need in that moment, most of all, is God's people in God's word, surrounded by prayers to God, all of us together, worshiping him. Because why? Because he is always available. He is available right here. And so we must have desperate faith when facing the unthinkable things. And so as Jesus goes with this desperate man, all of a sudden, we see this urgent story gets interrupted. We see this story about Jairus' daughter who is dying, but yet the story seems to get derailed here. Or does it? Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flood, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Brothers and sisters, by the witness of this, the persistence of this bleeding woman, we see that Jesus is always approachable. Jesus is always approachable. And how that applies to us this morning, our second faith goal is this, is that we must have relentless faith when facing the unfixable. We must have relentless faith when facing the unfixable. This is relentless faith. We don't give up. We persist. We press into him. We lean into Jesus over and over and over again, and he is always faithful to respond to our relentless faith. So what's going on here in this story 
is more than just a random interruption. This is not a random sidetrack. This isn't chance. This is divine interruption. And it's for the purpose of teaching. For the purpose of teaching about faith. Now some would say that Mark is using a literary device here. It's kind of a sandwich principle when when telling a story. He's trying to drive a point. And I would agree. Yes, Mark is doing that. Okay? One story inside of a story informing the other story. But I also believe that it's not beneath our sovereign Lord to mesh the actual event with the literary intent. He is the one who is both author of all history and he is the one who is writing it. It's his story. And so we have this divine interruption and this, we see that this, this urgency of this dying girl is going to have to wait because something more important is here and right now and it's going to inform the story. And so we meet this bleeding woman. She's been suffering from, from some sort of, of, of hemorrhage And the text says it's been happening for 12 years. And as doctors and people have studied this, most likely what we're seeing is some kind of a gynecological problem that she's dealing with, that she's been suffering for a very long time. And she wants relief. She wants a cure. But the cure has proven itself to be unfixable. 12 years unfixable. She's gone to all kinds of doctors. The text says that she has suffered much under the hands of physicians. I'm just going to relay some of these, some of what the Jewish writings at that time would commend to her. Some of the, the therapy would be drinking a goblet of wine mixed with rubber powder and aluminum and garden crocuses. Another treatment at that time by physicians would have consisted of, a, of taking a, a wine and some Persian onions and boiling it together and then drinking it all at one time and then having people yell at her, arise out of your flow of blood. That's the treatment. Another doctor's prescription at that time was to shock her, right? To scare it out of her. Or even to, the last one would be to carry the ash of an ostrich egg wrapped in a certain cloth. That's going to fix you. And then a whole bunch of other things that we don't even know. But what we do know is that, that she went for help and all she received was more suffering. They didn't help her at all. There was this constant pursuit of treatment which was ending up in extreme suffering. And we see that in this pursuit, she spends all that she had. She spends all of her money on this. And she was no better, but rather it says that she grew worse. I don't know if you can identify with a medical issue you're trying to get answers for. And you're always coming up dry and and you're spending money. and, And what you're seeing is ultimately you're getting worse. There's a lot of hopelessness in that. And we see in her that this has been going on for 12 years. And then on top of that, because of her bleeding condition, she would have been deemed ceremonially ceremonially unclean by her Jewish society. In that sense, people couldn't even be around her. 
Because if they were around her or touched her, they would become unclean as well. And so this lady would have been an outcast. She would have been living on her own, away from the people, away from her family. And she would have been poor and out of money. She would have been destitute. And she was getting worse and worse and worse. But then one day, then one day the text says that she heard about Jesus. She heard about this miracle worker. She heard that he's healing the sick, that he has power, that he claims to be God. And so she starts to think, if if I could just touch his rope, I would be healed. Well, back in ancient times, rulers, any kind of ruler at that time, was, was regarded to have some kind of special powers. Uh, they were known, they were believed to have around them some kind of a supernatural aura. And people would, would mob them, okay? And some people believed that if they could just touch their aura or touch their clothes, that some of this power would be rubbed off onto them. For example, people used to mob uh, Alexander the Great. I think we have a picture here. Oh, no, that's not, that's not the Alexander Great. We're thinking, go to the next picture, please. That actually, that is Alexander, and that's what he gets for staying at our house on Friday night. So, but Alexander the Great, the Great Conqueror, the Greek Conqueror, right? People, I mean, what he did in his lifetime was absolutely amazing, and people thought that he was uh, some kind of a god. That he said some kind of a power, some kind of an aura, and so they would just want to touch his robe and be baptized. There's actually some writing in the first century from Arian. People ran to him from all sides, some touching his his hands, some his knees, some his garment. And it was all in hopes of being baptized with his aura and his power. And so we see that, that some of this that was driving her was a cultural thing. But the text says she heard about Jesus, okay? This is not Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great wasn't healing people, right? He wasn't casting out demons. He wasn't calming a store. A storm, right? She heard about all these things and she believed in who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing. She's believing relentlessly and she's pursuing him at all cost. So we see her leaving the outcast area and finding Jesus. And she is unaware that he's on some kind of an an, an urgent mission to raise some girl from the dead. And she comes up behind him in the crowd, it says, and she touches his garment. This would have been his outer tunic. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Verse 29, Mark's favorite word, immediately. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So she was believing what she had heard, and then she acted upon it in faith that she would be healed. What we're seeing here, again, is relentless faith. She knew that she was unclean. She knew that moving through the crowd would potentially make the crowd unclean. She knew that touching Jesus would potentially make him unclean, but her belief in being healed compelled her to go. And Mark says immediately she was healed. This 12-year bleeding issue 
was perfectly and completely healed in an instant. It says that she instantly felt in her body that it was, it was being healed, it was being repaired, and she knew that she was healed. But then we see that she retreats. She retreats in, in fear of being found out. Verse 30, and then we see Jesus. Jesus perceiving in himself that power had got out from, gone out from him. Jesus knows that his power has, has, has healed her. He's not unaware of this. He knows everything that's going on here. He immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Right? What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, obviously, it's so packed all around Jesus. Everybody's touching each other. Verse 32, And he looked around to see who had done it. Again, not that he didn't know everything. He does. He knew exactly what happened. But he wanted her to come forward. Verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling. Right? She thought she was going to be rebuked. She thought that, uh, well, what she did in reality was a criminal act. And she thought she was going to be punished. And so she comes to him and she falls down before him. Again, that same word, proskaneo, lying in prostrate worship before God. And she tells him the whole truth. And as she tells him the whole truth, Jesus responds not with rebuke, not with condemnation, not with punishment. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So we're seeing rather than punishment, she receives praise. Rather than condemnation, he brings her back into the family. He calls her daughter. Rather than an outcast and a criminal, she is an adopted child of Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls her to show herself to him. He calls her daughter. And this is very important for us to understand. He calls her daughter to show her that it's more than healing. It's more than healing that he wants to do for her. He wants to bring her back into right relationship with him. It's not so much about the healing, it's about the relationship. He wants her to see his face rather than his hands. To be made well and to go in peace, to have peace with God. And he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Such a beautiful picture. She finally has healing. She finally has acceptance. And she finally, more than anything, has peace and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is always approachable. We must have a relentless faith when facing the unfixable. Now, as a bit of a, a, a warning, and because of this text brings this up, I want you to understand something here. This verse has been used and has been abused around the Christian world. This, your faith has made you well. Many different people within the Christian world have run off with this. They've run off with this as some kind of an example that they can claim for themselves so that they can be healed of disease like this lady. Yes, we believe we can be healed of unfixable diseases. We believe that. 
But they would claim that they would be healers of such things themselves, that they would be miracle uh, dealers as such. We have the health and we have wealth and prosperity, false teachers. They have abused these texts and they have used it for their own gains. And they use it and they prey upon the poor. They prey upon the destitute. We had a, a... uh, a couple from Africa in, in our small group this week coming just visited us, and they were telling us about Africa and how the health and the wealth and prosperity anti-gospel is all over Africa, and how people are praying on the poor and telling them that they can be healed if they just have faith. Rather than helping people with the gospel, they're abusing them with an anti-gospel. And so without getting too much into it, we need to remember that all of these miracles, all of what's going on here is happening at the time of Jesus and his apostles. The miracles of Jesus and his apostles were extraordinary supernatural events. And the sole purpose of that was to support the identity and the deity of Jesus Christ and to confirm his message. Where do I get that from? Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. They're saying, this is Jesus, and he was attested to you. By what? By mighty works, wonders, and signs. Also the apostles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. These things were to confirm the message, to confirm the people, to confirm the apostles and their work. And so the miracle of healing, sorry about that clicking with the microphone, the miracle of healing was an act of mercy, which pointed to a greater reality. It's always that. Every time we're seeing a miracle being performed here, it's pointing to a greater reality, right? When people are, are being made well from their sickness, it's teaching us that, that we can be made well from the disease of our sinful heart. It's always pointing to a greater reality of Jesus Christ, and it's meant to confirm the deity of Jesus and his message. And so as we look at this story and we look at this healing, we're seeing that Jesus wants her to have faith, not for more healing, Sorry about that. He wants her to be saved. He wants her to be in right relationship with him. So we do realize that people over the world abuse this and they're led astray and Satan is using this to completely get us to miss the point so that all kinds of people would pursue healing. But the point of this text is to show us relentless faith. Faith that can only be given by God. And we see Jesus here being led to heal her out of mercy and love. But more than that, he wants to call her daughter. He wants to call her daughter. It's the same with this room this morning. If you are not in right relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus wants to call you a son. He wants to call you a daughter. He wants to save you from your sin. It's a picture of salvation again. Because Jesus is in the business of healing. He's in the business of healing wicked, unclean, outcast hearts and drawing us back into the family of God. 
He has done this by making peace by the blood of himself, the lamb, and adopting us as his children. He, he calls each one of us here this morning that are his, he calls us daughters and sons. And in that, he calls us to love him and to know him and to be known by him and to live for him and with him forever. And so we need to ask ourselves, when I think about my faith, am I pressing into him? Am I pressing into Jesus relentlessly, persistently? Am I stretching myself so that I can get to him? Or am I allowing the sufferings and the distractions of this life to push us down the stream away from him? You ever witness a salmon run? When I lived in the Yukon, we lived, in the, we lived right on the Yukon River. And the salmon would come up every year, and then they would trickle into the creeks. Have you ever witnessed any of that? They come from the ocean. They travel hundreds and hundreds of miles, pushing against the current, pushing against waterfalls, pushing against obstacles, just to get home. This lady was pursuing Jesus like that, pushing against the crowd, going against the grain, going against fear, getting to her healer. And so we ask ourselves, are we, are we suffering afflictions and pain in this fallen world? And how are we dealing with it? Are we dealing with it in our own fleshly ways? Are we dealing it with just our own fallen thinking? Look at our lives. We have fallen relationships. Temptation, sin, pride, foolishness, anger, despair. And you want to be free of it. And sometimes you think that it's unfixable. Sometimes you think that you've tried everything. And let me ask you, are you relentlessly swimming against the tide? Are you relentlessly pushing in to Jesus Christ? Or are you just sitting back in the chair expecting God to do it? Spending yourself just to get a touch from him. What does the Bible say? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. I'll give that to you, Josh. What we have to understand and what we're learning in this point here is that Jesus is always available. Jesus is always available approachable. And lastly, we're going to see in this final section is that Jesus is always able. We must have a confident faith when facing the impossible. And so we, we've, seen, we've seen at the beginning of this, there was this unthinkable thing with this child that she was critically sick. And then we see this unfixable, incurable disease. And now we're going to see the impossible. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. I love that. Again, we're seeing discipleship on display, discipleship on the ground, taking a few and pouring into them. Love that. 
Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping in and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Little insight here for you. Whenever somebody would die at that time, it was a common practice uh, to have professional mourners. These professional mourners would show up, and their job was, was actually to go from death to death and mourn for the loss of the dead. I love this microphone. Where were we? Anyways, these professional mourners, they would, they would, they would show up, and they would mourn for the loss of the dead. We even see this as history records in the first century. Rabbi Judah writes this in the first century. Even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. Now these professionals, they were around dead people all the time. They knew when somebody was dead. And so that's why they're laughing at Jesus. They've seen the girl. They know what a dead person looks like. She was dead. The little girl was dead. Matthew's gospel says that she was dead. But Jesus says she was sleeping. Obviously, they didn't understand what he meant. Of course, Jesus knew that the girl physically died. But he uses this word sleep as a metaphor, revealing that Physical death for believers is not permanent. In John 11, 11, Jesus spoke the same way about Lazarus. John 11, 11 to 13, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. We see his disciples confused about this. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So you see Jesus speaking of death in a metaphor, right? Or speaking of sleep as a metaphor of death, highlighting that believers who, who ultimately physically die will be resurrected one day to eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's not a permanent thing.